Are you ready now? I am more ready than I was. Does that mean you're ready? (laughs) Do you have a topic for us? Do you have something for us to talk about? I do have a topic for us. So for the (laughs) listeners, uh, a couple days ago, Eric and I tried to record an episode. He told me to pick a topic. I didn't really pick a topic. And then we had a whole bunch of audio issues on both of our ends. So the episode got thrown anyways. My audio didn't save. Eric's audio didn't save. My mic was going in and out. But we're here again trying to do this. So, what are you holding? It's the pop screen. We talked about this last time. Oh. Anyways, so I think this is going to be kind of a... We'll start off with a little life update for myself. So... I mentioned a couple episodes ago, I don't remember which one, that I was working for the U.S. Census, um, and that just ended due to a congressional order that ended the census early. It's a whole thing. I don't really want to get into it. But now, I am in the market for another job, and you and I have both had some hard times finding jobs, most specifically, finding jobs that we want to do. Yup. (laughs) he's still getting everything set up so i'll just yeah i mean when you attach a pop screen to a symbol stand and you're recording on top of three different tote bins it's kind of hard to i just i wish i had a normal recording desk or something and that i didn't have to deal with this such is life (laughs) i'm gonna need some i'm gonna need some chips while you're talking Alrighty, great So I just wanted to do an episode where we kind of talk about our different experiences in the job market and trying to find fulfilling jobs. Because I remember that this was something you were passionate about at one point because you felt personally called out by Dr. Phil. What? Is that correct? You felt personally called out when Dr. Phil was like, those millennials, that's not a Dr. Phil impression. Those millennials aren't getting their jobs. They're not doing anything for the job market. Do you remember this? This this seems vaguely familiar, but you if I had to guess... You made an entire YouTube video about it. Did I really? <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you understand how long ago I was making YouTube videos? Uh, no. So I'll... I haven't watched the video in a long time. I'll kind of go over what I remember from it. Dr. Phil, in an episode, said something like what I just said. Millennials weren't doing anything for the job market. They just want handouts, want things handed to them. And then you made a YouTube video in response that said, like, Dr. Phil, I'm trying to get a job. And you were like, I have a master's degree. You really don't remember this? (laughs) I mean, that sounds like me. (laughs) Do you still have strong feelings about just when I bring Having a master's degree? About having a master's degree and not being able to get a job that you want. Yeah. So that's where I want this to go. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... Let me finish my chip. Oh, he'll finish his chip. I don't have a master's degree. I'm still in the final stages of even getting my bachelor's. But I've always been kind of picky about the industry that I want to work in. Um, so when I was in high school, my mom was like, you need to get a job. 
as moms kind of <laughs> yep. as moms kind of do. And I was like, well, mom, I just I really don't want to work in retail and I really don't want to work in food service. Then mom was like, there's nothing else left for you. That's what people <laughs> your age do. Hand motions and all. Probably. You know her. So that's kind of how I ended up in the animal care world because it was tangentially related to retail, but I didn't feel like I was doing retail. But I mean, even spending four, five years in that field, I knew that like that wasn't, I th I think I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But like, what else was an option for me? I mean, I think you have your options open a little bit more because you do have the master's degree, but... Ask, ask me how many jobs have cared about my master's degree. Ask me how many jobs how have many I had jobs that have, have cared, cared about, about your master's Zero! degree. Zero! <laughs> What's the uh, point in going to school? <laughs> I asked that question in 2011, and I guess I still stayed in school. Do, do you regret your master's program at all when looking at like a professional no. standpoint? You don't regret it. Well, professionally, it's definitely frustrating to not have anything related to what I went to school for seven years for. Um, but I don't regret going to seminary. I regret some of the decisions I made in college. I think we talked about this in our college episode, episode, however many long ago that was. Check the back catalog for details. <laughs> Your decisions about degree program, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, about degree program. Or about, like, not pursuing what I wanted to pursue, but what I thought I was supposed to pursue. Like, what other people were telling me, what I thought other people were telling me I was supposed to pursue. I.e. a STEM field. Which I had no real desire to pursue. Because yeah, I remember you talking at one point and saying that you wish you would have pursued a music career. And then in the episode that we had to throw, because your audio didn't record... You said that you wanted to be, like, a sports newscaster? A sports broadcaster. Like, uh, like, uh, being at a game and calling a game. Like, uh, like, what's her face? That one lady. Michelle Tafoya. Well, she's a sideline reporter, but that industry, the, the equivalent from that team would be Al Michaels. The I have no idea who that is. <laughs> so, had you gotten your communications degree do you think you actually would have been able to get into the sports broadcasting world i mean i don't know if it would have been specifically that um job i just i never realized how many different jobs there were in different industries so like in music if i had pursued some sort of a music career i the only like image i had of what a musician was like what i wanted to do was a person who toured arenas and like so like that's the only thing i saw and i didn't have anyone else around me to like model something differently at least not really so like it just it just seems so impossible to even try to figure out how to do that plus i was a drummer who didn't have like a variety of people around me to form a band with because it's kind of hard to be a solo instrumentalist when you're a drummer but like there are so many other other jobs within the music industry in terms of i mean take your pick of i wouldn't have wanted to do something like in the marketing or pr side but in like the 
production side, there are a bunch of different ways to, to be involved in music. Like, I just didn't know that any of these things existed. And then if you think about, like, sports broadcasting or sports journalism, there are so many different jobs or job markets or literally just, like, media markets where, like, this people have the same job but in different cities or different whatever. So, I don't know. Plus, I think voice-wise, like, my voice and temperament are best for baseball. Like a slower... <laughs> slower type game you mean one of the more boring sports <laughs> or i could call golf he hits it off the tee oh and a nice shot off the 14th tee i mean you've got the perfect <laughs> monotone for it <laughs> yeah that's the problem i don't have a great amount of inflection and when i try it's like louder or softer not not inflection not, uh, yeah <laughs> voice modulation I suffer from a condition of voice modulation. <laughs> I mean, I think with like sports broadcasting or something like that, it would also be harder to like break into the industry. But I mean, even with kind of the fields we're in now, what industry even is there? That's easy to break into. Sorry, I'm what what industry even exists? What's your degree in? Which one? Any of them. <laughs> My undergraduate is a dual degree or not a dual degree, a double major, reconciliation studies and third world studies. And then my graduate degree is an MA in justice and mission. Justice and mission. It's so hard. I wish it had been named slightly differently because the and gets lost in there. So it sounds like justice admission. What is justice admission? <laughs> Dad asked me one time, what's justice admission? <laughs> justice and mission. Like, do you think you're struggling because the jobs that you'd be interested in or jobs that like are in that field you can't easily do without like law school or something it's more like i mean there is that part of it i've i had thought about going back at different points for another master's degree but like i can't afford to pay for that so there is that part plus like i think ultimately i would love to be like a a college professor but that part of academia is slowly dying and in the midst of the COVID world, it's dying a little more quickly. So the humanities are not thriving. The STEM fields are thriving, which is why had I been interested in getting a STEM field degree, it would have been a lot uh, a lot more of an open market than what I'm interested in. Plus, my graduate advisor told me that, or told the entire class, that it's not going to be worth paying for a doctorate degree you need to get someone else to pay for that but there are like so many steps that go towards getting someone else to be interested in your work or your research enough to pay for it and i think in like a a christian academic community that's even harder than in any like it seems like it would be even harder because it's so much narrower than any other field that i can think of yeah, part of the reason that I spent so long in physics, even though I wasn't enjoying it, was because I was afraid of what my career outlook would be if I switched majors. Because now I am a women's and gender studies major. And I've had several people ask me, like, what is that? What can you do with that? And I can more or less tell you what it is, but I can't tell you what I can do with it. I don't know. 
One of the things I used to say was that the hardest part of the reconciliation studies major was explaining to people what the reconciliation studies major was. Yeah, because like I can usually explain like it's about social justice, inequalities that exist, why they exist. And it's like, well, what can you do with that? It's like, well, um, I don't know. So I usually just tell people like I want to work with women in STEM, but even that I don't know what that really means. So I mean, I'm supposed to be graduating in May, and I am very concerned for what I'm going to do after graduation because I think it'd be difficult to do anything with my degree, anything that I would deem quote unquote meaningful. But also, I don't want to go to grad school right away. But also, like what professional experience do I have? I worked with dogs for four straight years. That's not really yeah. not really what I want to do, but those were the jobs that were available to me. That's a frustration for me too, as most of my jobs are manual labor intensive, which I have no desire to continue to pursue. But then like those types of jobs don't set you up for, I mean, I feel like those types of jobs set you up for skills that you need in other career fields. But the difficult part is convincing interviewers and hiring staffs in those fields that your skills are representative of things that would be useful in a specific job or people don't seem to understand that like sometimes we want to change career paths and do something different and like but you don't have an experience but i'm applying for an entry-level <laughs> job in this field i it bothered me it bothered it bothered bothered and bothers me when i see entry-level positions that require a year of experience that is not entry-level it is not entry level if you were requiring experience from the past. Then you have already entered the field. <laughs> yeah, I've been on Indeed a lot recently. And, you know, South Filter aims however many miles. This is what my, I want to make. Then I always click entry level part time. And everything that always comes up is full time and or we require a master's. What part of requiring a master's is entry level? I mean, I guess it depends on the field. I would I would want my entry level attorney to have a master's degree. I don't want I'm applying <laughs> for jobs that are like ten dollars an hour. I don't think you would want your attorney to be to have a master's degree and make ten dollars an hour. That's the crazy thing about like social work jobs. I make more than a lot of social workers do right now in my data entry job. And there are like social work jobs that require a master's degree that make less than me at my data entry job. It just seems like it's set up all wrong. And then, because all of the jobs are like, I mean, most of the jobs available, uh, available. <laughs> by having a stroke, most of, most of the jobs available to me are still like retail jobs or campus jobs, but I really don't want to work on campus because they pay you like $8 an hour. That's better than some of the jobs I had at Bethel. I maybe got 765 working in the Office of International Studies for four hours, five hours a week. It's like, I mean, I won't say that I've done menial or pointless jobs, but I... Pick I, me. Pick me. You've Pick done me. menial or pointless jobs? <laughs> you it were a car pusher like at it. Target at, for one period of time. For a year. I'd call that a menial job. But, like, I even in my animal care with zero experience even then i wasn't making like minimum wage and it's just bizarre to me that campus can offer its 
students minimum wage while I'm paying 25000 a year for school. How is this supposed to help? Work experience. <laughs> <laughs> What's the point in work experience if I can't do anything with the work? <laughs> I don't know. Seems to be a, a struggle, a never-ending struggle at this point. It's like, I definitely don't regret that I spent so much time in animal care because I really did like the animals and it was something I was passionate about. But now that my career path is like completely changed, it's like, well, now I have all this practical experience in animal care, but I'm getting a degree in the humanities and I want to work with like college age students, not dogs, as much as I love dogs and want to spend time with dogs. Welcome to the club. <laughs> the Beck Children Club. I don't know. I feel like Emily got pretty lucky getting getting a job, getting like a career, like a real adult person job that's in her field of interest. So it's just you and I. Why is it just you and I? Two out of three. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> oh. Uh. The most frustrating thing I think about applying for jobs, I applied to, I think it was when I applied to like a home improvement store that will remain unnamed. They had me put in my resume. I uploaded my resume. Then they made me fill out everything on my resume into boxes. Yep. I don't yep. get it. Why can't you just read the resume? You look like you're going to say something. <laughs> I'm still eating chips. Still eating chips. I haven't had a lot to eat today. I'm debating whether to order a pizza tonight or not. We'll see what happens. I bought a a frozen pizza from a campus convenience store recently. It was like $5. We have not cooked it. It's just been sitting in our freezer. We had to go get groceries today. And so we just like, we filled up our cart on the Hy-Vee app. And click pick up, clicked pick up. It was a $10 pickup fee. Why do I have to pay money to go, why do I have to pay additional money than the money I owe for my groceries to go to the store and pick up my groceries? Because you're paying someone else to pick the stuff out for you and then bring it to you. So we didn't do that. So once this is over, we need to go grocery shopping. But I can't really afford groceries because I don't have a job right now. Relatable. In different periods of my life. In, I think it's Italy, we learned that like every citizen gets like some sort of stipend for like food kind of like like a universal basic income like andrew yang was running on and i feel like people should be allowed to eat even if they don't have a job which i know when you frame it like that it seems like a well yeah people need to eat but it's in some senses like a radical leftist idea until you're the person who needs to eat until you're the person who needs to eat. Like, I fortunately have money saved, but I know for a lot of people that's not an option. You're supposed to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Which, by the way, what even is a bootstrap? Like, I've never, I've never understood that term. What is a bootstrap? Because if it's a thing attached to your boots, how are you supposed to pull yourself up by your shoes? Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Think, of, think about it physically. Think about sitting on the ground and pulling yourself up using your shoes. I don't get it. What am I missing? I don't know. It's just, I mean, I've never 
been like in poverty, I've definitely like I don't make a whole lot of money, but I've never been like in poverty, so I don't have that experience, which makes me incredibly privileged. But I can recognize that poverty is like a cycle and it's very hard to get out of that. And besides the bad metaphor of pulling yourself up by your feet somehow, I think also just like meritocracy, the idea of pulling yourself up by your feet just like doesn't, that's not a thing in the capitalist culture. There is a YouTuber by the name of Casey Neistat who when he was making his vlog would talk seemingly every day about the meritocracy of YouTube. And I was just like, if Casey Neistat says the word meritocracy one <laughs> more time, I'm going to lose my junk. Just like, YouTube is a meritocracy. The world is becoming a meritocracy for video makers. Are you sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> it's... <laughs> I got a small loan of a million dollars. Like, <laughs> as, like, I think it's something that we struggle with, you and I, with wanting to make some form of creative content. Like, it's expensive. And we don't have parents who can give us a small loan of a million dollars to, like, jumpstart us. Yeah. It's interesting how stuff can, like, expenses can, like, creep up on you. So, over the last week and a half or so, you know this. I've been. I've started watching the Great British Great British Bake Off, and I was reading an article uh, that there had been an interview with someone from a past season talking about like, do they get expenses covered being on the show? And the person was like, yes, they get some expenses for what they like the ingredients they have on the show to make the things that they make on the show. But when you're practicing bakes during the week, because, like, it's a strange concept to me that they have, like, a reality competition show where the people get to go home during the week and practice for what's coming the next weekend. But, like, that's a thing that happens, and you need to pay for all the stuff that you practice with. So, like, imagine having to buy groceries upon groceries upon groceries for this thing. Like, this is the strangest example I could have come up with. <laughs> but, but just, like... It's a thing you don't think about. And then at the end of Bake Off, they win a cake stand. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah, there's not. That was Emily and I when we watched the first season. We were like, "What did What did they win?" We Googled it. It's like they don't. They don't win money. They win a cake stand. Now there are like I'm like you open yourself to getting brand deals or television appearances or whatever. There's. One person in particular, one former winner who one former winner who has uh like become a like a TV personality in the baking world in Great Britain. But like other than that, like another another reality competition show that I sort of watch is called Ink Master. It's like a tattoo competition. Oh, I've heard of that. If they win a hundred thousand dollars, if they win, like that's that's a lot more than a cake stand. So, I don't know, maybe it's a cultural difference. It is certainly a cultural difference to watch a reality competition show where the people are trying to help each other finish what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's like the strangest thing. Also, there are times when I'm watching the show where it's like, I wonder if I'm going to be able to talk with a normal American accent after I'm done watching this. Because it's just like, as I'm like just pumping British accent after British <laughs> accent into my brain. 
Like, there's a show, there's another show on British TV. I know we're very far away from jobs right now. Maybe we'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> there's another show on British TV called Taskmaster. And it's like a, a reality game show, but just with comedians competing. So it's like a series long. They'll have five comedians competing in these very random tasks to see who can be the best. And it's meant to be funny more so than like the, have the competition itself or whatever. But the people only ever say Taskmaster in a British accent. So every time I say Taskmaster, it sounds weird because that's not the show they're on. <laughs> they're on. Uh, I can't even. Well, now I'm like so in my American accent. I can't even think about what how they say it. It's just like, why? Why is this happening to me? Plus, there are words that they use that, especially in the baking show, that I don't understand what they're referring to. There's definitely a language barrier between English English and American English when it comes to cooking. Because they're talking about making biscuits. And I'm like, what are you referring to? Because what you are making is not... See, but I don't think it is just cookies. I think it's a very specific kind of cookie because they also use the term cookie. I don't get it. (laughs) Biscuit means something very different to me than what it means to the people on this show. Because when we think biscuit, we think like... Pillsbury biscuits and gravy, that kind of biscuit. Or just, yeah, like a, a fluffy. A roll, not a cookie. But a biscuit seems to be like a cookie. It's some sort it of also like thin can be, sheet of cookie. It also can be savory and it needs to like have a crack to it. It's like, why do I want to eat a cookie that has cracking? I want to eat a cookie that's soft. <laughs> well, it's, it's usually, like a, like a usually, thin cookie. Usually. <laughs> I don't know. I've never so made biscuits. Or maybe I have. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't intended to make biscuits. It could have happened. I do know after watching this show that I have no interest in one becoming that good of a baker, but two in like needing to be as um like all around good of a baker, like needing to know how to bake a bunch of different things. Like I'm pretty good at focusing on the couple things I know how to do and trying to improve those. But when you're having me bake 10 different types of things over the weeks they're like you make you're making me go from bread to cakes to pie to things we've never even freaking heard of and then back to something else and then these things are judged by people who may not have the same taste as you and it's like i don't no thank you (laughs) i mean i wouldn't mind being a better baker but like i definitely have my specialties uh my my main specialty is chocolate chip cookies yeah, off with the recipe off the package of the chocolate chips. <laughs> yes, but they always turn out better than Emily's. And then the other piece of that show is the competition aspect. So trying to make all these things and have like these ridiculously absurd, like build a structure that reminds you of this thing. A structure out of, out of biscuits. Cakes. And you need to do this and that. And you need to do it in the next four and a half hours. And they're like... All these, I love the interviews when they, they like talk to the people as they're baking and people will be like, well, I've done this before, but it's taken me a week to do it. And now we're going to try and do it in four and a half hours. And it's like, why? These people could be the best, could be the best bakers in Britain until you put them under the gun, which like definitely happens on the show. And like, it completely changes it. That's also why I would never want to get a tattoo from being on Ink Master because these people might screw up in the six hours they have to make your tattoo 
and then you might not get it finished. <laughs> Just walking around with a half-finished tattoo. I don't think you'd, you would be a good person to go on Ink Master to get a tattoo. We've been trying to get a no. sibling tattoo for like four years. I don't understand. There, are, They have so many people on the show who are just open to whatever the tattoo artists want to make for them. Just like put a and tattoo like, on my body. <laughs> I don't... I, how do you... I understand you're like getting... Probably you're getting a free tattoo. I don't know how they choose the people. But it's like... Just anything random at all? I, there, there have been people who have like tapped out and not done things. Like they just released a YouTube video of like all of the master canvases so it's like the last canvas is called the master canvas and this is the tattoo just that decides who wins there are people who tap out because of what the tattoo artists want to put on them even though they said they were open to whatever it's like that would suck as the tattoo artist but also if you sat through an eight-hour session getting something that's not done that you don't agree with then you just have that forever (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have exactly one tattoo, and it, it took me probably six years of thinking on it to decide that, yes, this is what I want to put on my body. Oh, and now you're so concerned about how long it's taking me to think about the sibling tattoo? It's not it! <laughs> <laughs> there are three of us. We want Yeah, connection. I think that should make it harder! We There's want- only one of you! <laughs> we want the connection to the three of us or Minnesota. And Eric's just like, well, I, I don't want to. No, there has been one design suggested in multiple years that I've said I am don't want. And people are like, well, Come we should do a sibling something. tattoo. <laughs> you didn't like any of my suggestions. So we're stupid. <laughs> Gear suggestions, I don't remember what they were. Emily had the idea of getting three Minnesotas tattooed on, like, each of our arms and then shading in the one that That was mine. That was mine. Oh, that was your idea? I was just about to say that was the worst one. (laughs) Because why would we want three Minnesotas? There are three of us. Why can't we? Why would I want... Why would I want three E's in the outline of the state of Minnesota? Because there are three of us! <laughs> but then it's not just the state of Minnesota. But we're from Minnesota! Minnesota doesn't have E's in the outline! <laughs> but it... <laughs> That's our connection! <laughs> to each other and the state! Anyways. I wouldn't mind being a better baker. I So I make chocolate chip cookies off... The recipe off the back of the bag, but it always turns out better because I don't... I don't know. I feel like baking gets a bad rap for being like, oh, it's so hard. Really, just like you throw some stuff in a bowl together, you'll make something. I mean, yes, if you... but is it perfect? I mean, I made some banana bread fairly recently. And I didn't measure anything. It's like, yeah, this is probably enough. And it turned out fine. I mean, it could have risen more, but taste was good. It was sweet enough. It didn't taste overly, like, flour. It wasn't dry. Just kind of throw some things until it looks right. Which, I mean, isn't what Bake Off is. Bake Off is very much... Nope. You have to be specific. It's always interesting to watch and see what type of person does well each season. Because it seems like, for the most part... So there are, like, a couple of different archetypes of people you will see on there. So there will be, like, the, like, British grandma who's been baking for 60 years... Then there's like a 19-year-old who's been baking for just a couple years. 
and then there's like a variety of sort of people in the middle of from housewives to random jobs they always seem to have some sort of like scientist or engineer type on the show at least in the five seasons i've watched thus far and it seems like for the most part the like older grandmotherly types will do well initially but then like not be able to get beyond like the first couple weeks because i'm i'm curious if it's like they're so set in their ways of what they've done that they're not as open to doing things differently to actually do like what the judges are looking for and then like the engineer or like there's like engineer people or construction worker type people the first season i watched it was, it was a construction worker person but like their their minds are built for like doing things a specific way and for like building the structures that so often happen with the the showstopper bikes so like they actually are typically able to succeed pretty well and then it it hinges upon does that person understand how things taste as well as what they look like? Because there was one guy who went out fairly early because stuff just didn't taste as good as everyone else's stuff. And then, like, the younger people will sort of do their... They'll do, like, the thing they're supposed to do, but they'll try different flavors that the judges haven't thought about. Like, typically that's how it happens. And more often than not, once you see a person starting to get more and more, like outside the box and what they're trying to do it's because they're like desperate and they're struggling to find a way to stay on so typically they'll have like crazy ideas but then that's the week that they go out because they're just trying too hard to do something impressive rather than like sticking to whatever the deal is the one thing i really want to see on one of these bake-off seasons is whether there could be a person who is just like not the most, I don't know, flamboyant is the right word, but like out there with their designs or whatever for their things, but is so like technically perfect at making baked goods that they just like, they make something that seems normal, but is like the the best thing. They, they like continuously say, if you make something simple, it needs to be completely perfect. And, like, I want to see someone who bakes like that succeed on that show. What, see whether that's actually possible or not. I don't know. It'd be interesting. I feel like part of the show is also, like, the experimentation of flavors. Yeah. Well, I think you could experiment with flavors, but also not do something super showy, but that is just, like... I'm going to make a castle. So well made. So elegant in its simplicity. I think there's a difference between simplicity and simplistic i think there's a difference between those two things because i think a lot of times when people get knocked on that show for being simple it's for being simplistic not for seeking simplicity and there are a lot of other especially tv shows like that where referring back to ink master they'll have challenges where people say keep it simple and then other people will be like no we can't do simple it has to be xyz whatever was like no simple can be really well or simple can work really well if it's done really well if you're seeking simplicity then you're like shaving off like fat or edges or like things that don't need to be there in order to focus in on like what is essential to what you're doing 
So I'm curious to see whether something like that would actually work if someone is able to produce works like that week after week after week. The first thing that comes to my mind when you're talking about um, sim simplistic versus the other one, there was this Simplicity. one. Yeah, there was this one episode of Chopped, um, cooking show in the U.S. where they get their basket of ingredients, and two of the ingredients are like tomatoes and grape jelly, and you have to combine them into an appetizer to make them taste good. And the person, it was some like rock star or something. It was like a celebrity episode. He just smeared grape jelly on his tomatoes and put it on the plate. <laughs> Pretty simple. <laughs> he um got kicked off oh i'm i can't imagine why <laughs> that would be me on chopped i want to oh. do something like chopped just to see what would happen but like i can't see, I cook. do it for something that i'm not prepared for like you could try and get on this baking show or like on whatever type of cooking show if you wanted to if you don't know how to cook like what are you gonna do I think that'd make it like funny. Entering any sort of entering any sort of competition, not just like being on a show. Like there's so many different levels to before you're on TV to doing a thing. They're like talent competitions, or like you could try to enter something in the state fair, I guess, which is like the top level of what you could do in Minnesota. It must feel like yeah. being on Twin Cities Live or something. Be on daytime <laughs> local TV. Daytime local TV got me to Great British Bake Off. Gotta move to England first. Or Scotland or Wales. Hey everyone! Hey everybody, my name's Eric. And I'm Elena. And we are the co-hosts of the 2 Out of 3 podcast. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And we've come back together today to talk to you guys about our Patreon page. Anyone who's familiar with the podcasting world knows that podcasts are mostly self-funded productions. Patreon is a way for us to connect with patrons who will help fund our productions with us. So if you're watching this video on Patreon, you're already here, so go ahead and take a look around. If not, there are two different ways you can find us. You can go either to patreon.com slash 2 out of 3 podcast or to 2 out of 3 podcastcom That's patreon.com slash 2 out of 3 podcast or 2 out of 3 podcastcom Now back to the show. Yep. <laughs> I mean, this kind of relates to something you were... I sent you a job offer recently that was for, like, a podcaster or something. And I didn't realize that we were both grossly underqualified for it. (laughs) Um, But you said that you wanted to get to the point where, like, people are seeking you out instead of you having to try and find these jobs. Yeah. That's, like, the... That's, like, similar to the pursuing a doctorate degree if that was a thing i was interested in having people be interested in paying for me to go instead of me having to to pay to go i think it's the same vein where it's like it would be it would be really nice if someone else was interested in what i was doing without me having to like jump through a dozen different hoops to pursue a job where then i also wouldn't have creative control like i'd rather either do my own thing or be be in a position where someone is so interested in what I'm doing to help to like fund that. And another part of the um, episode that we lost kind of related to just our own pursuit in being found. Eric can <laughs> describe this better than I can because I don't fully understand what it is. There is like an app or something that we're on now. 
Yeah. We are now available on or through PodMN, which is an app that you can find in various places, the Apple Store and the, I'm sure, other places. I downloaded it through the Apple Store or just like PodMN.com. You can then download there. But it's a a podcast app that I think just pulls the RSS feeds from Apple, from, uh, I would say iTunes. I think it's just Apple Podcasts now or whatever the podcast player is called. Anyways, <laughs> Yeah. So they pull from there and it's podcasts that are either related to things happening in Minnesota or made by Minnesotans or people in Minnesota. So... Since we are Minnesotans and this podcast is produced in Minnesota, I submitted the podcast for review and it was selected. Hooray! <laughs> so so if anyone has happened to find us through PodMN, thanks for coming. Uh, <laughs> various places, I guess you could let us know if that's actually possible. I don't know if we're ever going to get analytics for that. If it gets Because pl- like, if it gets played through PodMN, I don't know if it like counts on iTunes or if it counts through I mean however it works we're not going to know if people are listening through there unless they tell us I think so we have Twitter we have Patreon you can leave us a review in the Apple store or the whatever the Apple podcast deal is etc etc yeah yeah. but I mean we're still also very far away from being like sought out (laughs) yeah I think we're more of a like a we happen to be stumbled across. <laughs> Somehow, <Which, laughs> somewhere. We appreciate that. I was always that. curious. I was always curious on YouTube how people just like found stuff randomly. Because I'm not one to just like search through hundreds of creators who make like, or like, who have like five subscribers to try and find who's making incredible content or whatever, videos, etc. Et so I don't know how people just like go about finding that thing. Do we need to make something for the algorithm? Do we need to <laughs> influence the algorithm? Have you seen the documentary The Social Dilemma yet? I have not. Okay. That may be worth discussing at some point. Cuz I mean just with Talks my own my own experience trying to find smaller YouTubers, there are a lot of Twitter accounts. Um where small YouTubers can like tweet their videos at this account and they'll just retweet them to supposedly an audience of other small YouTubers. And I mean, I have gone through a lot of not great content and I found, I think like two or three YouTubers, like solid YouTubers who I would enjoy watching content from, but it took hours, probably days of effort. And I just, I don't have that time anymore. So it's, yeah. it's hard when you're trying to break out on this sort of scene. Yeah, especially now that's inside the meritocracy of YouTube, like the <laughs> market is so saturated. Okay, Casey Neistat. Yeah, this is a thing where you want to make things like the the grand philosophical idea of making things because you love to do it, not making things for the money. But like... It takes a long time to make things. And I think the amount of things you need to make, especially on YouTube, in order to be noticed by either people or the algorithm, is so time and labor intensive that the speed at which I am able to produce something interesting 
just is not possible without getting paid for it as well. Because mm-hmm. then, like, I have to do my eight hours a day job plus whatever else I have to do plus producing this podcast <laughs> plus etc. etc. Et you know, going to buy groceries or all the other things. It amazes me. It it amazes me more now and impresses me more now than it did growing up to understand people who are able to actually like make it from nothing like Mm -hmm. because like it's so difficult it's not just a it's like this the american dream pull yourself up by your bootstraps that we referenced before it's like so impossibly difficult there's this idea it's an idea in philosophy i'm sure i won't get everything right so if you're a philosophy person you can correct us somewhere but there's an idea in philosophy called the veil of ignorance. And so what it is, is that you have like the world that you consider your ideal or like you create a world that you would consider an ideal on one side of the veil of ignorance, like as detailed as necessary to have like the current population of the world in that world. And then you are on the other side of the veil of ignorance. And what the ignorance is, is that you don't get to place yourself into a certain person or position or whatever on the other side in the world. You just get put into the world. And the idea is that, I think what the philosopher who like created the idea was suggesting is that a world on the opposite side of the veil of ignorance from you will be more equitable because as a person going into that world, you don't know where you're going to end up. You don't know what, what circumstance you will end up in. The interesting thing from what I remember is that for Americans who like participate in this uh, thought, idea, whatever, is that they make the world pretty much as it is right now because there is this American ideal of I could still end up into one of the top level people in whatever system I'm creating. Cause there's like such a strong individualism and like make it on your own concept philosophy amongst our nation. Like, and there are a lot of ways where that sort of idealism and individualism is very helpful, very like, like very special i guess for lack of a better world word but at the same time it like also while thinking about like creating this world behind the veil of ignorance thinking about what what the upper level stuff is or where you could end up there are a vastly larger number of jobs or things or people or whatever on the bottom side on the less fortunate or much less fortunate side but people don't think about it that way when they're Americans doing this thought experiment. They think, well, no, there's there's a chance that I will end up in one of the top places, so I'm going to keep the world pretty much as it is because of the chance that I could end up in one of these when I get inserted into this world. Like, put into the Matrix, basically, maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know, it's an interest. I thought it was interesting because... When I first encountered the idea of the veil of ignorance, I didn't know about that, like the 
the difference between what it's like to have an American doing this versus other people from other places. I only experienced the, or I only learned about the concept itself and what like the expectation of the, the thought experiment was, is that it would like create a more equitable world, which like, not necessarily. I think that came trying to double back to where I came from on that. I think that's from a making it from nothing type thing, which like when you actually look at people who have been successful, it's very hard to say people have legitimately come from nothing and even fewer who have had no help getting to where they are Mm -hmm. to actually like make something of themselves in this American way of idealizing the person who makes something of themselves. I think it's also difficult to look at people who have made something of themselves and say that they've made something of themselves, like they came from nothing, because I think oftentimes there are hidden advantages that we maybe don't see. So, like, I mean, even the fact that we can create this podcast, even if we have, like, six listeners... Even the fact that we can create the podcast, we're advantaged in some sense. So, I mean, we both have computers and microphones that are capable of recording and whatnot. Some people don't have that. So if someone else, even someone else in Ames wanted to create a podcast with their sibling, they might face more struggles getting to even this point. Which, I, I mean... I would say we're not super far along in this journey, hopefully. Hopefully things go up. <laughs> I mean, there's not a whole lot of way to go down from six regular listeners. Five. <laughs> if dad stops Four. listening, we're screwed. <laughs> but uh, even to go further down that rabbit hole, it's not just that we have like the means to have the computers and microphones. We have like the our housing figured out we have food figured out we have like basic needs are met which in a lot of places basic needs aren't met for people and so your time and your thought process is more about meeting your basic needs rather than doing something extracurricular or if suddenly you get these needs met but you've been living in this like I think of it as like a poverty brain. I don't I can't remember what the actual like term is, like a scarcity brain where like your focus for so long has been on I need to get my basic needs met. So everything I do is in pursuit of what happens next. I'm more concerned with like my immediate future than thinking long term in the future. And so if suddenly your needs are met, your habits don't just change overnight and suddenly now I can be future focused and start planning for things. You're still in this like spending immediately because things need to be taken care of immediately. So there's a person who works at an organization I interned with on the east side of St. Paul when I was in college who just wrote a book and she talks about this in the community that she works in and lives in where like there's this big contrast between like the people who are in the middle class in this neighborhood and the people who are living in poverty in this neighborhood on like a bunch of different things. But money is one of them where it's just like habitual, I guess like 
I mean, habitual is one thing to say, but like systemic as well, where like your focus is on completely different things. And so for someone from the middle class to say they made it from nothing, it's harder for me to agree with that. For someone who makes it like out of poverty, out of poverty not even just like just making it out of poverty is incredible in the country we live in because there are so many different ways that people who live in poverty pay more for different things than people who aren't like people who just pay rent instead of paying on a mortgage you could pay multiple times over for a home which you like don't qualify to get a mortgage for so now you've spent all this money on these things or you like you need money now so you go to a check cashing place to get an advance on your loan. Well, there's an incredibly high interest rate on that. So now you're having to pay a ton for that. Or like you get your taxes filed and you can either wait the couple months to get the filing in the mail, get your refund, or you can get a refund now with an interest rate where you need to pay the people who are giving you the loan. Or like getting a car or like not qualifying for any sorts of loans or there was another example that I'm forgetting that she used but it's just like all these different things where you're paying a ton and you're needing to pay it because you don't have the money now so you're needing to like get money from different places or just like not having the money to open a bank account because the bank doesn't think you're going to be a reliable person to have or a good investment to have banking with them. So now you again have to go back to the check cashing place where they charge you a fee to get your check cashed there. So now you get less money than you would have if you had a bank account. Like there's all these hidden things that people don't think about with living in poverty or with like having less than you do if you're like a middle-class type person. It has always been interesting to me that politicians like aim their messages for the middle class when there is like a large percentage of the American population that is not in the middle class. And it's like, do you think that people think they're in the middle class? Is the idea to strive towards the middle class? So someday what we're saying might apply to you, but like, we're not going to give you help to get there. Like, I don't, I don't know. It's hard. That's a thing I've thought about since, I don't know, junior high, since I started paying attention to, since I started to even know that there was politics. I don't know. Yeah, I think the easiest understanding I've, or the most basic understanding I've been able to get of poverty, example, most basic example of poverty and how that, um, I'll just say the example. So imagine... A pair of boots, like a pair of cheap work boots is like $10, or a pair of really good quality boots is $100. If someone's living in poverty, they have $10, they'll buy the cheap pair of boots, but they'll wear out faster than the $100 pair of boots. It's like they'll spend, like your loan and mortgage example, like they'll spend more money on boots than someone who could just afford the $100 pair of boots, but they still wouldn't have been able to afford a hundred dollars on a pair of boots even though they may spend five hundred dollars over the same course of time that someone with more money spent only a hundred dollars yeah it's like i follow not super closely there's a guy on snapchat who does 
quote-unquote struggle meals where he's like making meals that are less than two dollars a plate but he'll go out and buy like sixty dollars worth of ingredients at a time and then make plates that are like less than two dollars a plate when you break down the cost of the ingredients but it's like you know why I can get something that's less than two dollars without having to spend sixty dollars McDonald's yeah you can go to McDonald's and get a McChicken yeah which like what is that doing for your health if that's what you're able to afford yeah, and then there's issues of healthcare, and now you're spending more on healthcare because you've been eating McDonald's because that's what you've been able to afford. I think we don't recognize how deep the issues of poverty go because it's not just like people are poor because they're bad at budgeting their money. It's like there are th these are systemic issues. Yeah, which. People always seem to need the caveat that this isn't always the way things are. Sometimes it is a personal thing. But, like, we focus, or people have a tendency to focus so much on, like, one thing that they can understand immediately rather than a thing they need to work to understand. Mm -hmm. Which I think in this case is personal effort versus systemic injustice. Like, I, I work my... I work my behind off at a lot of different jobs that were very, like, crappy jobs. Like, it's not a lack of effort that is the reason I have had some of the crappy jobs I've had in the past. This is kind of similar to the discussion. If you're a newer listener, we had a discussion about our experience, um, our different experiences growing up in schools. We had a discussion similar to this about low achievement in our high school and why that may be and what would need to change if we want to fix that achievement gap or remedy it in any sort of meaningful sense. So if you want to give that a listen, it's a few episodes back. The one right before the college one. Yeah, we have, we've, that's kind of the whole reason why we started the podcast is because we have very similar life experiences in that we're both from the same family. We grew up in the same place. We went to quite a few of the same schools. But there is the generational gap. So our experiences have been interpreted a little differently or we've experienced things not quite in the same way. I understand what you mean, but I think it's funny to phrase it as generational gap. I mean, Eric's seven and a half years older than me and, like, if you want to get into which yeah, generation... Technically, there is it. We are from different generations, technically, even though we are of the same generation, like ancestrally. Yeah. Yeah. I can. I don't. <laughs> I had a discussion in one of my. I took an honor seminar a couple semesters ago, and we had a discussion about, like, what is a millennial? And we kind of landed on millennial is a mindset. <laughs> because, like,. I was born in 1999, so technically, depending on which breakdown you're looking at, I would fall under your millennial or Gen Z, but I identify kind of with millennial, kind of with Gen Z. I like the term Gen Zillennial. It's, like, it's just kind of like a, a combination of the two generations, which I feel a lot of people in plus or minus two years of my age kind of feel that too but like you are through and through yeah. millennial it does seem that there are a lot of things that make 
generational changes like that more rapid at this point in history, especially when it comes to technology. Because, like, when I was in elementary school, we still had floppy disks on our school supply list. I was like, I don't know. Have you even seen a floppy disk? We had floppy disks. We never used them, but we had them sitting by the computer growing up. We, yeah, we bought a computer. The family got a computer sometime shortly after we moved to Brooklyn Park in 2000 that didn't have a floppy disk drive, like, for the first time. So, like, it wouldn't even have been helpful to have floppy disks to save stuff on. Did you know that that's what they're for? You save stuff on floppy disks? Yes, I did know that. like old school flash drives, which what even is a flash drive now? I mean, I still, I have flash drives. I don't use them. Now I have an external storage device with numerous terabytes of storage space. As opposed to the floppy disk, which is what, like 200 MB? Maybe. Dad talked about when he worked for one of his previous tech jobs, he would have to carry around this like briefcase-sized tech or like a like a storage space for computer information, basically. That was like, I don't remember how much he said, but it was like comparably... The two gigabyte iPod that he got, the first generation iPod, had the same amount of storage space as this briefcase size like thing he had to lug around in the 80s. Thing. Yeah. And now, could you imagine finding something that is only two gigabytes of space? Like, my freaking phone has the same amount of storage space as my computer. And stuff just keeps getting, like, smaller and smaller. It's a, I don't remember, there's, like, a name for the, the phenomenon where it's like every five years storage space becomes more efficient to the point where you like have double the space in the same amount of size. And it's like is continuing to happen, yeah. which is why why uh, flash drives from the past that had like 128 megs, now the same size flash drive has 64 gigs. It's like orders of magnitude more storage. Yeah, but it's necessary because all of our things are getting bigger and there's more... Hard drive. There's the more things to... hard drive. There's more to oh consume in the world, entertainment-wise and information-wise. Yep. Not always a good thing. Not always a good thing, but there is, there is more. <laughs> Even looking at, like, the difference between the Xbox and my phone, I think the Xbox that I have has, like maybe eight gigs of storage so it's from decade ago 2005 2006 something like that. decade and a half ago whereas my phone is well when did i get my phone four months ago or like the the playstation or the memory card had <laughs> the 12 <memory> slots <laughs> for you to save your game we don't even have had... two memory cards. We just have one. So I've never been able to save a game other than Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2 because Eric has all the other memory taken up with something else. Yeah. Do you still have my MLB 05 season on there? Probably. It's like <laughs> the, I would the, try and play the Spider-Man the game that, that we saves have. Six spots of memory. <laughs> 
I would try and save the Spider-Man game that we had and I couldn't because there just wasn't any space and I didn't want to delete anything. So every time I played it, I started from the beginning. I can't yeah. tell you anything about the plot past the first like 20 minutes of game. Yeah, I got that game or I played that game up to some point. I don't even know how far into the game I was, but I got to a level I just couldn't pass. And then by the time I got there, I just like there were other things to do. So I never cared to finish off or try and figure out how to beat the level. Now, there's a game we're playing now, me and one of my roommates on the PlayStation. We're playing Borderlands 3. And we got to a point that we're just so frustrated because we don't know what's happening anymore because we play it without sound and just play music. So we're missing all of the plot, which I mean is kind of our faults. <laughs> but now we're just so frustrated that we just don't really play it anymore and we'll just play Tony Hawk That's, because <laughs> isn't that like the whole point of that part of the video game of like the quest or whatever it's called is the plot of the story that you're playing through yeah I mean for a while we understood it the game starts out you're on a planet you're going around doing tasks and doing missions and fighting bad guys and whatever but then you eventually get on a ship, do a short, some short missions on the ship, and then you're on a different planet. And, and getting on the ship and going to the different planet, we've lost all of the plot points, and so now we don't understand what's happening anymore. So, I mean, some I, Wikipedia articles. We, we more or less understood what was happening when we were on the one planet. But we also play it generally without sound and with music playing, so... I never really got into video games other than sports games. And then it was like, what's the point of getting the new sports game if it's the same thing, just with like updated people who are playing now instead of the people from five years ago? Yeah, I went into GameStop within the past couple months and I, there was only one worker and I was the only person in the store. So the one worker was just kind of hovering over me. I was like, so what do you like to play? I was like, oh, I've been playing a lot of GTA. He's like, what else? Oh, that's it. You've been playing GTA for 10 years? Yep. And just picked up some random games and paid for them and walked out. I have played zero of them. But I wanted <laughs> I wanted to make it look I like mean, I was... part of the same boat. I wanted to make it look like I was interested in gaming, so I just picked up some cheap Xbox games. I was at... It wasn't a GameStop, but a similar type store a couple years ago now. And I was like basically just buying updated versions of sports games that had more accurate rosters to the present day but then they had a deal where you could it was like buy three games and get a fourth one for free or something so i bought batman arkham asylum thinking like if there's a game that i would try if that's more of like a video game proper this would be one that i would like actually try zero playing time on that game in two years zero the other thing i want if anyone knows of a game like this for the xbox 360 i want like a driving game where i can just like explore the world and not have to do anything other than just like explore the world that the game is in there you was, just want to drive but just digitally well kind of well there was like so there was a guy i lived with senior year of college who had a ps4 and it like had some demos on them and there was a need for speed game where you could like demo and you just like drove around the city that you were in 
And then there were like different quests or things you could do or like you needed to stay away from the cops. And if the cops are chasing, you, you need to get away from the cops like old school driver two type stuff for the PlayStation, which I had for a period of time and then also never finished. But like I'm gonna be able to do stuff like that. Whereas like right now I have the Forza racing game that came with the Xbox 360. And I just want to like see what else is outside the track. <laughs> I don't want to keep having to drive around the track. Let me drive around the infield at least, please. Oh, you could go to that one German track on there. Oh, I need to. <laughs> I have one series where that is the last race I need to finish. But like my cars, like the cars that are racing in the series are good enough that I can't just like get way ahead of them and then sort of figure my way out around the track. I need to figure out how to get around this eight minute lap time track, <laughs> which has like hundreds of turns basically. At least that's what it feels like. And it's super narrow. There's like maybe space for two cars. It's not easy to pass. And freaking, it is a lot easier for the computer cars to crash you than it is for you to crash the computer cars. And if you're sideways on the road, they do not care about T-boning you. I mean, they are computers. Yeah. (laughs) But then it's like their cars seem magically to not have the same amount of damage as yours. What the heck? My yeah. frustrations with a video game that's 15 years old. Sometimes I wish I were, like, interested in actually playing video games, but I just, like, I'm fine playing my two Tony Hawk games over and over again. Yeah, well, I mean, you get the classics and then stick with those. THPS 2. And the place where you can be happy. Resurrected that from the dead episode, too. My goal in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 was always to get 100% on every level, and I never was able to do it. I think the most I ever got was 70 or up on every level. I mean, I still have it. I can try and beat that, but I don't think I could save the game. We should be able to just, like, build upon what is already there. There should already be... uh, two slots of memory space for that game Mm -hmm. or you could just restart and rebuild everyone up that was the other thing i started going through just every single person to max out all their stats with all the stuff you buy or stuff that's what i started doing too completing quests and then there were like old school skaters whose names i know just because they were in tony hawk's pro skater 2 because with the new tony hawk game i have (laughs) new it's still like 15 years old tony hawk project 8 the thing about that is I don't know where all of the secret spots are, so I have to go around and re-find everything that's a secret. Where with the Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, you already had everything secret figured out. So now even if I go through and start my own career, yeah. I know the extra things that I can do. It's like one like extra spot per place. Nine. I think two. Just, no, like nine total places you went to. I'm trying to remember if that's right. Because it was like you would do two different levels and then you would get to a competition level. And then you'd yeah. do two more levels and get to etc. And there were only three competition levels. So I think there are only nine total places to go. Yeah, and the Tony Hawk Project 8 is more of like a like a city. You're going around a city, not individual places like Hangar. See, and that's what I want out of a driving game. Hangar. France. Bull ring. Yeah. Could I name them all? So there's... Hanger. No, I don't think I can. 
Yeah, you school. start at the hangar in Montana. France. You go to school in LA, Marseille. I think you go to New York. That's one of them. I think that's fourth. What's fifth? Venice Beach. Uh, there's a Philadelphia one. Philadelphia is the one before the bull ring, I think. So what's the second competition? There's one that's like, it's not a hangar, but it kind of looks like a hangar. It's like a warehouse type place. I think that's a competition one. Also, I think I think it was in California. I don't remember what it was called. What's the last one? Or are there just eight? We've named... I'm actually going to look this up now. Well, I mean, the very last one is the bull ring. Yeah. Philadelphia's in there. THPS2, the hangar, school two, contest one in Marseille. Well, Uh, there are two different, like, outdoor beachy type ones. Oh, there are just eight. Okay, so the hangar in Montana, school two, Southern California, contest one is in Marseille. Then it goes to New York City, uh, Venice Beach. Contest two is Skate Street, which is that the warehouse thing, which is in Ventura, California. And then there's Philadelphia, and then there's the Bullring. So there are just eight levels. So instead of having two in between each level or each contest, there's just two before the first, two in between the first and second, and then one in between the second and third. <sighs> if anyone cares. <laughs> that game has to be at least 20 years old we still play it that's the only game we play on the playstation released for the playstation in 2000 with subsequent ports to microsoft windows Game Boy color and dreamcast the same year could you imagine trying to play tony hawk's pro skater 2 on a game boy that would be hard <laughs> I didn't play too much on the Game Boy. It was a Tetris master. That's about it. At least. And we had the, well, we had the, the one game. We had a baseball game, which had a 10-run rule. So if you finished an inning 10 runs ahead of the computer, you beat, you won the game. So there was twice that I finished the game in the first inning. Once I won 10 to nothing, and once I won 11 to 1. What else? We had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. Oh, that was there a good was a one. Micro, micro Machines racing game. Kirby's Dreamland 2, which Emily got for her birthday because she wanted. Which Why? I th- I think I played that more than she did by far. And then there was a a Barbie game. Oh, I don't think we had a whole lot else. And then when we got the Game Boy Color, there were a couple of Game Boy Color games. There was like a Powerpuff Girls game. There was other things. I don't remember. And then I briefly had a Game Boy Advance, but it broke. I think something fell on it. No, it like fell off a car. We found it in the middle of this. Oh no, different Game Boy. We had two Game Boy Advance. Because I had like the original Game Boy Advance, like the wide one. But did we also have a flip one? I think I'm thinking of different things. We had like the gray original Game Boy, the purple color Game Boy, and then well, technically the game boy pocket which was sleeker and slimmer than the original game boy which was like a brick yeah and And then the game boy color the the gray one that we had that we found in the middle of the street because it like fell off a car or something whoops and then the game boy color one of the keys stopped working or one of the buttons which like isn't helpful when there are 
two buttons. Fun times. Got through many a car ride with the Game Boys. Oh, my body's starting to hurt from sitting on the corner of my bed. <laughs> well, my phone is fast approaching death. And I think we stopped talking about jobs a while ago. <laughs> As we mentioned in the dead episode, everyone be prepared for a discussion about V for Vendetta coming soon to a podcast app near you.